you have to have the confidence to charge properly for what you are doing. Otherwise, apart from anything else next year, you may not be here. And then where am I going to get my eggs, extra eggs? Where am I going to get my rhubarb? So we want you to be here. We want you to flourish. So have the confidence to charge properly. And that's the next step for us as consumers is being proud of paying the value food should have. This week on Dirty Linen, we are doing something very special. I'm actually coming to you from Zin House in Mudgee, the restaurant on Tinger Farm. The business is low. There are wines here. There are vegetables. There are cattle. I can even see an emu out of the window that I am looking through. It is an incredible business, an incredible community and a series of projects. Um, we are kicking off a series of chats. We're with you for the whole week from Mudgee. We're kicking off with Kim Curry. Kim is, well, regional dining in New South Wales would not be what it is without Kim and her incredible work across three decades um, in uh, central and western New South Wales. Um, farmers markets, restaurants, community building, uh, so many things that we will not have time to cover in this chat, but we will give it a good go. Kim, welcome to Dirty Linen. Lovely to be here, Danny. I can assure you we won't be eating the emus. <laughs> well, I wasn't angling for that, but there's certainly no shortage of good things to eat here. Um, how do you describe Tinger Farm and Lowe uh, when people meet you at a party and ask you what you do? I'm an introvert at the party, so I'd be introducing them to David Lowe, who people are much more interested in speaking to, and I'll be the one having a quiet drink in the corner. Um, I say I'm a cook. I'm not a trained chef, and I guess that's how I introduce myself. Uh, Zen House has been my identity for about 10 years, but of course food and wine and development of regional food and wine has been my love for three or four decades. But what I'm really loving now here, you said the word community, and that's really special for me to have been able to help build that on this farm and with this group of people who are contributing so extraordinarily to our crazy dreams, which is just to do excellent things with food and wine and to share that with people and community. Yeah, so what people, what can people experience here? Like what are the things that are going on? There is the garden, which is where everything starts and the seasons are fully represented there and then that come translates onto the plate. So there's a restaurant, which I'm always embarrassed to hear, described as fine dining. I guess we kind of morphed into an elegant country experience, but it's never been about fine dining. It's been about representing what's happening in the garden and the season on the plate and, and in our region and in a broader sense. So to that effect, we every week our kitchen team and our gardeners get together and we have a produce challenge which sets the menus going forward. So that's obviously my side is growing things, lots of orchards, animals which we try and manage as gent gently as possible. I would love to see in the future that we can have our animals processed on the farm. We hate the fact that 
we have to send them away and for all we're organically and biodynamically certified so there are only organic abattoirs further away so we go to a lot of trouble we take our animals in we don't have carters in we put them in trailers and we take them at a time of the day with the least impact and we ensure that the first animal through the processing but I still find that distressing so Australia can we please do more about allowing us to treat our animals humanely on farms so they can have a lovely life from beginning to end but that said we have lamb we have beef we don't have emus for meat we have them because they're funny and they make us laugh and they're incredibly interesting characters and one day they may even give us some eggs and the, on top of the restaurant, there is a bakery in town, which is named after my mother, Althea, which means wholesome or the healer in Greek. My mother has taught a generation of children to love food and to care about good basics. So that's the bakery. We have a pavilion, which is a big high-pitched marquee, which overlooks the farmland and the water of the dam. That's where we do events and weddings and a cellar kitchen which mirror images the cellar door. So essentially I do food, David does wine. Yeah, it's incredible. And how many people do you have come through the property a year around about? Oh, no idea. I can tell you how many come through the restaurant on any one week. We do about 200 covers in the restaurant, which suits us. We open Thursday to Monday for lunch, Friday and Saturday dinner services. No tables turned, so single services, so people can have long, leisurely connecting lunches, which is as we like to do it. So a couple of hundred people through the restaurant, hundreds of people through the cellar kitchen, hundreds and hundreds of people through the cellar door, and about 50 weddings a year. The bakery in town is, uh, you've been there, the locals have been great supporters, visitors are told it's a must-do, and it's a busy little spot that has some great coffee, great pastries, and excellent sourdough bread, all made from organic flours. Yeah, well, I can certainly speak to the excellence of the bakery. And, you know, it's interesting to hear you, I guess, try to shake off the fine dining, um, Monica, for the restaurant. Because I, I agree with you, it's not exactly fine dining, but it is a very special experience. I was lucky enough to have lunch here yesterday. And I think as much as anything else, it's the, the languorous nature of it, the slowness and the fact that you are your attention is drawn to the produce. So I think there is something, I mean, perhaps that is the luxury and perhaps it's the kind of luxury that you hope more people are prizing isn't it where it is that connection to land the the privilege of eating something that's been grown carefully just you know within a stone's throw of where you're sitting um which isn't at all to downplay the beautiful room we're sitting in the restaurant now and it's gorgeous it's an old house and there's beautiful light and lovely artwork and you know beautiful timber tables and there's certainly you know some of the trappings of fine dining but for me the the real I guess the fine nature of it was that connection that I could feel to the land I was sitting on. Oh, that's lovely. And thanks to Luke Scaveras for all our lovely art because he's done a series on the Tinger Farm and most of the other artworks here are from his private collection. So that's a lovely thing. But again, it's because Luke's a friend and he's from the region. So it all comes back to connection rather than artifice or trend or fashion. It's very much, yeah, to say being part of of this region so it's nice that you feel that hmm um i mean 
And you mentioned the abattoir situation, which, I mean, I agree with you. There is a very small amount of on-farm processing in Australia and it is a massive problem where people go to such trouble to give their animals a great life. And, you know, this idea of, you know, one bad day, like why should there be one bad day? If I think about my dog, every day is good. Like why can't it be like that for um, for animals that we grow to, to eat? Or, you know, um, it doesn't sit doesn't sit well with me either. So I suppose as much as you, you sort of create um, the world you want to live in here you can't create it entirely can you like what other changes are you trying to forge well we will continue to work towards the animal processing because until there are enough voices and people being prepared to take risks in fact at one stage I said damn it we're just doing it and other people in the business said yeah, that's all very well for you to want to go to jail for your, for your principles, but there are a lot of other people whose livelihoods depend on the choices that you make. But we have to keep speaking up and we have to keep drawing people's attention to it. One of the things that we, one of the few things we haven't really been able to do, which we have wanted to for a long time, was to pursue aquaculture and aquaponics on the farm because we don't sell, we don't serve seafood because we don't produce it. It's not part of our ethos, but we would love to do that. And because we were on a lovely long, long stretch of the Kajigong River, we've been fishing and kayaking down on the river recently. When I say we, staff and various family members and catching carp, which was distressing in itself. We think, what are all of these horrible creatures doing in our river systems destroying our native fish? Apart from the Murray Cod, which was doing very well because it killed a duck in front of me while I was actually catching a carp at the same time. So, side story, come back to the restaurant with a dead duck and a carp. And I said, the fish killed the duck. And it was like, you are nuts. Said I was assured that it wasn't the carp killing ducks that had pulled it underwater and drowned it. It had to be an apex predator like a, a cod. So, that cod's very safe down there. The duck's not so safe. So, getting back to the fish, we realised that carp, great way to do it would be to try and feed them to people in the restaurant, serve them. And first my, some of my staff got upset and they said, we charge people a lot of money to eat here, you can't serve them some horrible muddy fish. Besides, he said very smugly, you'll need a commercial fishing licence. So you'll never get one of those. So uh, we're in the last processes of getting our commercial fishing licence, having gone through all the right process, processes. They did say at fisheries, Kim, don't you, don't you like your customers? I said, what are you talking about? He said, these fish taste awful. But we want to see for ourselves, we're going to have an experiment and apart from anything else, we're going to pull lots of fish out of the, the river, hopefully, and find some ways that we can do it, whether we're using our lovely big cask smokehouse or some stronger flavours. Um, we're going to have a play with it. We're going to serve it to our customers and get their feedback and probably do a lovely little bit of aqua, um, aquaculture-produced Murray cod on the side too so they can see what some beautiful native fish taste like, but also why we're working so hard to get the carp out of the river so that these fish, these lovely Australian native fish are, um, are helped to, to be sustained as well. So when you do something like that um, and when you grow the food and then put it on the plate for somebody that's, you know, just perhaps coming on a once a weekend away from Sydney and they think, oh, let's do mudgy. I mean, what sort of transformations would you like to um 
to occur for people that come and spend time with you? I want them to understand how hard we work to produce food and how important it is and that it tastes fabulous. That's the sort of food that people don't have the luxury of purchasing, let alone eating in a restaurant usually, and how important all of those, the vegetable part of that process is. We're so obsessed with having bits of protein and finely refined food and things that are always, things being pureed and smeared and I've got my own teeth. You're not giving me a straw. I actually want to use my knife and fork to eat my food. I want it to have texture. I want it to have flavour. And I want people when they come to our restaurant to realise that we have grown that with an enormous amount of care to Lydia, who you will be speaking to, uh, talks about it being... um, um, rich and, and yeah, very, very rich food. That it's, um, it's so much more good for us. There's so much more nutrition in the food that's grown the way that we are growing it. But it's a really long, difficult, expensive, labour-driven process. As I said, we're organic, so we can't spray and wouldn't want to spray anything. We're, that involves a lot of hand labour. The biodynamics is all sorts of things that are layered on top of that to support our environment and our soils and the creatures that grow there. So when someone says, gee, they charge a lot of money, given that you know, there's a lot of these dishes are just vegetable, like just vegetable. I would love if people appreciated the fact that they get so much just vegetable. Yeah, that is a very worthy project. I mean, so you've got this sort of larger aim, um, I guess a, a, a way of connecting people to food, about storytelling about food. I mean, does it make sense? Like, can you make it make sense as a business? We're lucky here that we have about 20 hectares of this farm that provides the income to support the other 400 hectares. So our land is resting, restoring. We have an area that's set off for conservation of uh, animals, um, natural conservation. And we're able to do that because we, uh, we have these businesses on the other small part of it that allows us to afford the rest of the farm. So it's the diversity of what we do. About 50% of our business is food and about 50% of our revenue comes from wine. We've got that. Uh, we are able to grow things here, make them here, sell them there. We're not dependent on supermarkets or export or distributors. So many of those things that are so horrendous for a lot of businesses in the country and primary producers. So that control over our business at all those different levels is incredibly important. We're not afraid to charge what it's worth because we know the value of it and people support us in that. Part of that means that we're not going to be for everybody. So some people will come to the cellar kitchen and the cellar door and enjoy an informal experience. Other people will come to the restaurant or to the bakery. But there are still some people who are never going to get access to that nutrient-rich food that we were talking about or those beautiful experiences. So for us, one of our longer-term goals is how do we connect all of community to a farm like Tinja? 
And do you have any ideas on how you might do that? Or is- uh, don't let Lydia and I have a glass of wine together or get <laughs> uh, The more that as a staff and as teams we talk about this, the more ideas we come up with. And I know that there are other people doing that and I'd be really interested in any ideas other people had. Uh, obviously community gardens have become much more extensive and much more diverse in the way they operate. I established one in Ralston with the school, primary school 20 odd years ago which is still going and those are, are lovely healthy environments that start that, that uh, happening. But here, because there is so much land and it's certification for the organics across a lot of it and the inputs of the biodynamics that Kesha is working on, how do we do that? How do we involve people? We're continually looking for that. But I would love to see people who are underemployed, unemployed, out of prison, in prison, uh, working with older people, cross-generational things. I just need a community of people who want to do that and supervise that and work with that and not get hysterical about all of the tape, all the red tape that comes with that. And I guess at some stage uh, we'll push against that tape and allow that these things will happen. And part of the pleasure for me will be getting to, and is, getting to the point of the business where I can step out of the daily routine and the hands-on things and do those sorts of things which would be the next stage of my career that I would love to do working with those staff like Lydia who are also driven to provide an involved community. It's not unusual to see saltbush growing when you um, drive around the Australian countryside but it is unusual to see as much saltbush growing as I've seen here and in such an organised fashion. Can you tell me about that project? I can tell you about it but I can't take any of the credit. Nathan Lovett who is also the CEO of the National Indigenous Culinary Institute, that's his block and he has 5,000 saltbush plants and I'm sure you'll talk to Nathan at some stage, he can tell you way more about it and all of the other plants that he's establish, establishing in a native food garden. We met native, We met Nathan through his work with the Culinary Institute and in placing young Aboriginal students in kitchens and he mentioned that one of his dreams and one of the things he'd like to pursue would be to have arrangements with farmers where he could use land and we went, choose us, choose us. And of course, it felt so fitting and was quite emotional for all of us because this is land that would have been taken off Aboriginal people by the Low family. So this land grant dates to 1820s. So when we used to say, oh, you know, Lowe's from 1820, and my daughter was the first person to ask, so what happened before 1820? I was like crushing moment of realisation that, you know, what were we thinking? That it never occurred to us. So... Um, that process is um, will be ongoing and how we can give back and acknowledge that we are custodians and not owners is an ongoing process and Nathan has been incredibly generous in supporting us in that journey. It's such a reckoning, isn't it? Um, I mean, for so long we... I mean, you know, there are lots of things to celebrate about generational farms, but of course, yeah, it started somewhere and it starts with dispossession, you know, unquestioning, unque- that's, um, that's, you can't question that. Um, so then, yeah, what do you do about that? It's, um, yeah, and I, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it seems fitting to me that you point to Nathan's generosity, which is, seems re- 
just seems ridiculous that, yeah, it's more giving. But yeah, I get it. It's very comp- it's very complex and yeah, very very upsetting and and um, yeah. I mean, it's I think everyone in Australia needs to reckon with that. And I think people that are landholders, you know, such as as, as you are, um, it's a it's a bigger and the reckoning stares you more in the face but I mean I live in the city and I you know quote unquote own my house but you know that is ridiculous so yeah it's a reckoning that we all need to undertake um so yeah I I feel like city folks sometimes feel like they're off the hook with that kind of stuff but actually we're not um so yeah I mean everyone does what's in front of them to do and we all take steps forward hopefully together so yeah it's a big one um so Kim, you have a lot of chefs coming into your kitchen here and I'm sure you have interesting conversations with them, like not all of them would have worked with produce um, in the way that it's before them to do um, at Zin House. Can you talk about some of those those conversations and, and um, yeah, pathways that people go on? Nothing culls chefs like giving them a garden, a real garden. <laughs> they all think they love produce. They all have this romantic notion of, oh, yes, I'd love to have a garden, or yes, it's something I've always wanted to do, or what a privilege. And then when they see how much work's involved and the just working with the garden and then having to have that versatility to change your menu day on day and not not being able to just see three boxes of beans turn up in three different colours. I had a gardener resign when she, it broke her to open the fridge and discover that the then chef had, she'd come in with beans of all sorts of colours and sizes and different parts of stages of growth. Big wobbly, big um, wonky ones full of developed beans and tiny little ones. And there were three perfect boxes of different coloured beans in the cool room. Um, so, uh, yeah, that shift didn't last long after that. But my point is that what people think about produce, how they think they feel about handling produce and dealing with the day-to-day challenges of a garden are completely different things. And that's why our challenge, our weekly challenge is so critical. And for the kitchen to realise that Lydia is in charge as the gardener. She'll tell us what's coming on and... Yes, they can say, yes, could you grow this for us? And we'd love this. Could you, here's a list of things that we'd like to see. And of course, of course Lydia will um, try and implement as much of that as possible. But this is a particular climate and all the seasons have different demands. And the, the chefs don't necessarily understand that like a gardener does. So we say that the best chefs are also gardeners because they get that. And... What Lydia and I are still doing is things like when a chef might say, when will the carrots be ready? They're like, can you just stop obsessing about the carrots? Because they were going to take several months, but you've got this beautiful crop of heirloom turnips here. And they might say, I can't feed turnips to customers coming to a restaurant like Zen House. Why not? Well, they're turnips. Like, people didn't used to eat pumpkins. They thought that was... That was um, food for stock as well. So those are the sorts of things that we're working with on a daily basis. The other is not puring everything. As I said earlier, like um, when you were, uh, and Rob were arriving yesterday, I was waiting and realised the mulberries were ready much earlier than I thought. And I went into the kitchen and I was so excited with this bowl of mulberries. And a French chef said, oh yes, they will make a lovely sorbet. 
that wasn't a very French accent, was it? Uh, so, oh no, I've just picked them. They're perfect. And look at the form and the shape and the texture. So that's, a, that's an ongoing process as well. And I'm sorry, guys, but I am going to say the blokes are worse than the female chefs in trying to impart their ego onto dishes. So pulling them back, constantly pulling them back and going, hey, mate, it's not about you. Like, then it just, you know, I know you saw something gorgeous on Instagram or, you know, this cool chef is doing this, but you're not listening to us. This is the produce we've just laid out. You know, there are 36 pieces of produce we've just put on your bench that are in our garden right now. Talk to this, look at it, feel it, listen to it, like play with it, touch it, put it in a pan, don't put it in a pan, like stop cooking everything as well and just really listen to the garden. And that's probably the greatest ongoing challenge we have when chefs are, they, they see all of these shows, they see all this streaming of stuff and, and you know, they, they want to cook everything over flame, which is great. We love flame. It's great. But no, we don't have to cook everything over flame. And you don't put your bloody gas guns away as well. And what's wrong with an oven and great olive oil every now and then? A bit of salt and pepper. So just remember how good basics are. The other thing is that a lot of young chefs, they're not learn, learning the classic French uh, dishes and techniques so we're doing a bit of that too like okay well you know that's all really lovely and we all love a bit of Japanese or Korean influence and we have a lot of Filipino chefs so we love trying to get them to use their cultural food but guys you've got to learn about French cooking because if something hasn't been done before there's probably a really good reason so let's have a look at it like you know it's a twice cooked cheese souffle and we're going to put our broad beans and our peas and our asparagus around it with some lovely flowers off those plants to, that actually also taste delicious and they're shocked and surprised often at how good simple basic things are so that's still the old girl's role is to be pulling people back to understanding the garden and good solid kitchen basics mm, well a couple of things i want to say one is that souffle was exquisite and it is so nice to have um, a classic like that but then you know you've got it with the um the legumes that were just i think some of them were like cover crops and you know they're just so it's really that story is interwoven with them and um when you're talking about <laughs> yeah not doing too much to food it made me think of a story that um we told on this podcast some time ago when gerald diffie came on who owns gerald's bar and wrote a great book of vignettes of his life in hospitality and he spoke about um when was up at, with um, Stefano Di Pieri in Mildura and they were walking around Mildura um, one afternoon and saw some mandarins on a tree and Stefano picked them and um, then it was like what's what are we going to do with the with these beautiful mandarins and all Stefano did with them was put them in a bowl on the table after dinner it's like that is it right <laughs> like that's that's where you just um, you put your ego in your pocket and just let the produce speak and I mean that's brave but it's yeah you feel like that's going to I mean it, I don't think that's uncommon in Europe you know just have a bowl of fruit or in, or in Asia where if you finish a meal like that but I think um, where you, you feel like well if you come into a restaurant you need to have to do stuff to food but actually maybe it just needs to be delicious yeah and that's why we have the advantage that we have grown it so people understand that that effort's gone and we haven't just gone and bought that mandarin if we put it on the table or a mulberry as a petit four rather than a handcrafted chocolate that people understand that there's there is a connection here rather than it being 
something from the market. So it's one of the things that we have going for us. It's one of the things that generally people will understand and appreciate and, and value that. Kim, you mentioned your mother, Althea, and her love of food and how she imparted that to you and your siblings. Um, but how did it you know, begin there and then it turns out that you've built a life in food? Tell, tell us that story. My father left our family home when I was quite young and we had a largest family, a much younger brother, who's now a very good chef, and a handicapped sister and an older sister who had left home and my mother went out to work. In fact, she learned how to swear working in a canning factory. Um, and the, the, the Maori and Polynesian um, women who were in the canning factory taught her how to smoke and to swear. So she was away from home a lot and I assumed the role of cooking for the family. And I quite liked it. Uh, my brother learnt to cook because he would wag school every day and when he wasn't surfing, he worked his way through the Edmunds cookbook. Everyone will now have pecked that we're Kiwis if you hadn't even worked out my accent. And mum allowed us to experiment. Even years before that, I remember she would put us up on a bench. So we were too young to stand at a bench and she would sit us on the bench and give us a range of ingredients and let us put them together and she wouldn't interfere. And when I was also young enough to have to be put on a bench and not stand at it, she got me up to three pans making pikelets. So cooking and flipping pikelets. So last week I was making blinis for a wedding and one of the staff asked if they, they could do it. And I said, oh, it's my superpower. Blinis are my superpower. Uh, too long a story to tell them in the middle of a wedding. But uh, that's um, a mum. So she, she was very relaxed about what we learned and how we learned it and always insisted that we taste everything. We were never forced to eat things. But also she was a very adventurous cook and her mother, who was Tongan, was a renowned in their neighbourhood as a magnificent cook but also a sharer of food. And I think that's the really critical thing for our family is it's not just a love of growing food and cooking food but the sharing of it with other people is critical. And that's probably why we've all gone into restaurants. And how did you end up in New South Wales doing farmers markets and restaurants? I got kicked out of university because I was spending too much time working in restaurants on my second job and not enough time studying and I was terrified to tell my father who was had a very important job in education at that time that one of the universities had, had kicked me out. So I joined a girlfriend in Sydney the, um, we, we were in Coogee, which is you know the classic, you know, Kiwis come to Bondi or to Coogee. And I was told not to tell anybody that I was a Kiwi or no one would give me a job. And in my first job, within my first interview in about three seconds, the publican said, oh, you're a Kiwi, aren't you? I went, yes. He said, well, you've got the job because you haven't been here long enough to pick up any bad habits. And I found that the whole hospitality industry in Australia was just incredibly generous and incredibly kind and supportive. And I taught myself to cook, really, other than what I'd learned working in restaurants and as a, as a teenager watching kitchens while I was waitressing in tourist towns that where, where we grew up. So from that, I ended up in Newcastle and then the people who owned the pubs in Newcastle, took me to Candos where they had bought a pub and I was cooking there and met my then husband and had a family lived in rural area where I don't know what else I was going to do but to 
cool. So started having a series of restaurants. I think I worked in all of the pub kitchens of, of the district and eventually we spent a lot of time in Mudgee in, again in, in various um, food related things. Had a big catering truck and moved around the district cooking for weddings and functions and got to know a lot of the vignerons, became interested in wine but more importantly got to know producers and understand that by buying food off local people that I was supporting a whole community and then it was almost accidental and secondary that the produce was better as well. So it was again, it was like, oh, this guy's on the door of my restaurant and he's got these eggs or these cabbages or growing some, something amazing that I've never seen before. And it was still, like my, some of my guys early when they start here, it's, they still think it's easier to pick up the phone and call the supplier than it is to buy from a whole lot of small people who it's really variable what's available. But understanding that relationships uh, the primary starting point in any food and in cooking and in meals and in communities like ours, that those supporting those people became the beginning of that process for that 30 odd years of realising the difference that I could make. And then that's obviously was the case with farmers markets too. It was, and that was at a, a really early days in the farmers market movement and the pioneering days of it for Australia after Jane Adams had come back and worked across different regions and across the regions, right across the states of Australia, we were meeting and mixing and there were regional food and wine development officers like myself, which was my job at that time, supporting these kind of ground roots development across Australia. And it was an exciting time. There were some really amazing people doing very similar things to myself right across Australia. And at its, at its, base always was working with people and developing communities and supporting farmers to have as much power and earn as much direct income as possible. So, I mean, if we step back from being here and um, I guess farmers markets in, in particular, like, do you feel like the food systems have improved over the decades? Like, how would you sort of characterise where we're at now? In some ways, we're quite insular here now because I'm not involved in all those broader communities. But I look back to 30 years ago and some of the menus we would try and write in various regions, that was such a struggle. That chicken, nobody was producing those sorts of things. Ilabo lamb was a pioneer and one of the few things that was available. So yeah, we've come so far. Customers demand it, they cherish it, they value it. Restaurants, a lot of places wouldn't survive if they actually didn't play catch up. So now it started with the people who said, no, give me the best produce and I want to support producers. And then everybody basically had to play catch up, whether they believed it or not, because um, um, authenticity has become so significant. So people like ourselves who've always been driven by authenticity, quality, generosity, I hope we've had a role in, in, in that. But even if you don't believe that now, you can't get away with actually trying to, 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 to do some of that because you've got to identify where your produce comes from. People want to know. Um, they want to know, want to know that producers are paid well. And so they should be. If somebody that we're buying produce from charges me too little, I ask them to charge me more. 
And they're all like, oh, no, I don't feel comfortable. It's like, no, you have to have the confidence to charge properly for what you are doing. Otherwise, apart from anything else next year, you may not be here. And then where am I going to get my eggs, extra eggs? Where am I going to get my rhubarb? So we want you to be here. We want you to flourish. So have the confidence to charge properly. And that's the next step for us as consumers is being proud of paying for what food, the value food should have. If I go to the supermarket and I see cauliflowers at $2.50, I feel so sad. Think, who can produce a cauliflower for whatever they were paid for by the supermarket? And I'd like people to be thinking that way. I don't want them to go in and think, oh great, aren't strawberries cheap? And think, why are these people only, why are we paying $2 for a punnet of strawberries? That somebody at the other end must be losing. So they're the kinds of conversations that I think we'll keep having and that's the next step. Now everyone's gone the first step of the last couple of decades of getting the produce on, understanding and appreciating and supporting producers at a base level, but the next thing is to make sure that people can still be on the land and that they have a meaningful life and that they're able to feed their kids well because they're farmers. Yeah, that's so well said. and. Um yeah, I really love that, but it also makes me think about the long, complex supply chains that a lot of people are at the end of with their, you know, two or three or four or five dollars. Whereas, you know, you're chatting to the farmer and telling them to charge you more, like that is so direct and so important. But I think there is such a mentality of if you're shopping at the supermarket, let's say, like, you, you know, that piece of produce has gone through six or seven hands perhaps, and you feel like, yeah, do you, you need to be able to trust that the money's going where it needs to get to to want to spend it. So I think that sort of transparency needs to, um, yeah, needs to occur at every step along the supply chain so that people can, yeah, have that confidence that they're spending their money in, yeah, and, it, and that it's making the difference that it should. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, it's a complicated world. And it also <laughs> circles us back to that whole conversation about how do people who are struggling to keep a roof over their head by nutritious food. Yeah. And that's why I think that people like ourselves have this huge responsibility. We have a large amount of land, it's underutilised. We have some incredible people here with amazing skills. Um, that's our next step. We'd yeah. like to explore that. Well, I've got no doubt you're gonna do, do amazing things in that space. Yeah, absolutely incredible. So finally, Kim, I mean, we could definitely talk all day, but I would just love to ask you what you love about what you do. Oh, I still uh, love food and cooking. I particularly love the gardens and I'm looking forward to being more involved in that. I love that David and I get to support a whole community of people to do things well. I like that we are showcasing a way of feeding and farming people that is healthy. And when I say healthy, I mean healthy in the broadest sense, healthy for our people, healthy for our soils, for our cultures. There are people here from all around the world that work with us and this is a, a landing point for them. Sometimes I say to young staff, please tell us what you want to do for yourself in the future because it's an honour to be part of that. Everyone's going to go off and do the next thing in their life and not every, very few people are going to stay in, in businesses like ours for decades. And they're certainly not going to be here for as long as David and I because we have no intention of retiring. So we'd love and we feel privileged to support that process. 
So that's another thing. One of the things I guess is that a lot of people have come through what we're doing and gone on to do other things. And I feel really honoured that we've been able to touch some of those lives. Wow, beautiful. Well, thank you so much for letting us into your life for, for this. And I'm so uh, grateful to be able to spend a week in podcast, in podcast time at Lowe and Tinger Farm. Um, yeah, talking to some of these wonderful people that you work with. But yeah, thank you so much, Kim, for having us here and telling your story. Thanks, Danny. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.